Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Zach Glazer. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 356 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're replaying one of our favorite episodes where Sam Glover talks to Annie Grace about the alcohol experiment. Today's podcast is brought to you by Rankings.io, Latera, and Text Expander. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned and we'll tell you more about them later on. So, Zach, today we're replaying this episode. It's also Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, I think is the original yeah. air date of this. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody, or I guess American Thanksgiving. Yes, fair point. But we wanted to we wanted to be intentional and replay this episode for a reason because it addresses on such an important topic. And as we're sliding into the holiday season, alcohol becomes a thing for some people. And mm-hmm. also, maybe in light of the pandemic, I know that I feel like I've been kind of winding up my day with a glass of wine more than normal. Yeah, it feels like a thing, almost a, a thoughtless thing to do sometimes. You know, we're, we're going from the work day to the non-work day, and sometimes we need that transitional space. And some of us are probably having more than, than we want to, and that may be one, you know, but, but some of us may be kind of thinking about our relationship with alcohol right now. And I, I know I, I certainly do a lot of times in my life and in the year. Yeah. And so I guess one of the questions that kind of comes up as we think about, you know, what Annie's going to talk about in this episode is how can we create space for people who aren't drinking and kind of not make a big thing out of it? Yeah, I, I love this episode because of that, because that is something I've found in my journey, I guess, uh, with alcohol is making a place for people that aren't drinking at events any event and making it a non thing, a non issue, a, you shouldn't have to prepare for what you're going to say to people when you're not drinking. And I, I think that's important for the other people to think about. Yeah. I know we just had our LabCon event and one of the things we did there very intentionally was had a signature mocktail for anytime we had a bar you know, we also had just fun drinks that weren't alcoholic and it didn't have to be about, I don't drink or I'm not drinking. It could just be about, wow, I want to try this other beverage just because it looks good. It tastes good. It's a thing. Absolutely. You know, I, I think about a, a Manhattan a lot of times when I think about that type of thing. And a Manhattan to me is not a particularly, well, it is a flavorful drink. It has a lot of flavor to it. It has an interesting flavor to it. You can accomplish that without alcohol, but a lot of times when we bring non-alcoholic drinks in, we say, we're going to have a virgin daiquiri, or we're going to have something that is a facsimile of what the, the alcoholic drink is, but just without the alcohol. But we can have things that have interesting flavors. Specifically, a Manhattan is not something that I would say, ooh, that is great. That's sweet. It's got complex flavors to it. And we can do that with our signature drinks. And, and that's what people, I think, a lot of times are looking for 
not even necessarily the alcohol. Right. Just something flavorful and interesting. I love that. Something you can keep in your hand. Yes. And and talk with people, you know? I will confess, I need that thing in my hand. It is a weird mm-hmm. crutch that you're like, oh, I can't, I can't be at a party and network without something in my hand. I don't know what to do with my hands. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that's part of it. You know, there's certainly the social lubricant aspect to alcohol, but I, I think more than anything, it is kind of giving you something to do, making you feel like you're part of, of what's going on. A lot of times if I'm not drinking on a particular night, I'll have, you know, club soda with lime in it because it looks like a drink, but I just keep it in my hand. You sip it slowly like you would any alcoholic beverage and it just gives me something to do. It makes it a non-issue and I, I would really like it. And I've seen it more often now if the places that we're going to make it a non-issue as well. Exactly. I think that's one of the big takeaways here. Well, I am excited for the holidays. It is a fun time of the year and excited that we can share this episode with people because there's some really important messages in here that sometimes it's good to hear again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, without further ado, now we have a replay of Sam's episode with Annie Grace. Hi, my name is Annie Grace. I am the author of This Naked Mind and The Alcohol Experiment and really just want people to help, you know, look at alcohol mindfully more than anything else. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the podcast, Annie. It's kind of been an interesting experience getting you on the podcast. I had no idea who you were until about 30 days ago, exactly, when one of our community members, Jennifer Longton, said, you have to have Annie Grace on your podcast. And I found your materials. I started my own alcohol experiment. I read This Naked Mind. And um, now you're a celebrity in my mind, and I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. So welcome. That's awesome. You have your own podcast called This Naked Mind too, right? Yes, This Naked Mind podcast. Very cool. After I learned who you were and started uh, investigating and reading, your name kept popping up more and more and more, especially among people I know who've had their own struggles with alcohol. You've helped a lot of people. That must be a really humbling and amazing experience. Yeah, it's it's mind-blowing and definitely like, okay, this is happening with or without me. I'm just glad to be able to play a part, right? <laughs> Do you know how many people have signed up for the alcohol experiment? It feels like thousands, maybe tens of yes. thousands. No, we've crossed 100,000. Just Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's really amazing. Well, good work, I guess. <laughs> I don't, you probably don't need me to pat you on the back, but great work. One of the things that drew me immediately to you was, I guess, I don't want to hate on those who are working at substance abuse from other angles, but the AA message has never worked or resonated with me. But your message is more around, it felt like it was more accepting of that using alcohol is a spectrum. And if I feel like I need to take a break, then I probably do. And here's a very convenient way to think about it. And then in the alcohol experiment, it was more of a scientific approach to changing my mind about things. But clearly you have engaged with that idea of what does it mean to have a problem? And you talk about this a lot in the book. And how should we be thinking about that? If the idea has occurred to us, how do we think about whether or not we have a problem? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I kind of want to address it in two two different parts. And, And first of all, talking specifically about the paradigms that exist. And it's funny because I, I didn't get into this. I got into this with my own story and doing a lot of research and coming to some conclusions that were different than what I was seeing in like the world and saying, hey, this is really interesting. And one of those conclusions 
was really that we don't use this all or nothing mentality with anything else. I mean, I can't think of anything else where 100% is success and 99.9% is like shameful, abject failure. Like it is if you have a drink after you're sober, you know, quote, or if you're in recovery. And not only do we not use it with anything else, but it it isn't relevant to the majority of people. Hmm. And so I started thinking like, well, you know, what does it mean then to have a problem? Do you need to stop drinking forever? And the science says that most people don't. (laughs) That actually, like, according to the Center for Disease Control, 90% of people who excessively drink aren't chemically addicted. They're not clinically addicted. They don't need sobriety as their solution. And I'm trying to remember from your book, but there is such a thing as chemical addiction where, like, if you do have another sip at any point in your life, it will sort of wake your brain up to addiction again and you'll be addicted all over again. But that isn't the majority? No, it's not. It's only 10% of excessive drinkers. So it's a, it's a vast minority of people. Huh. And, you know, that really happens over time. Alcohol changes the brain to where you have fewer dopamine receptors and all that detail. And basically what happens is then, yeah, one drink after even 10 years of sobriety can get you right back into the pits of the pathways in the brain that were originally addicted. But hmm. most people, you know, they just need a break. Most people are on a spectrum. A total spectrum. And actually, the the whole term alcoholic is not even recognized by the medical community anymore. It's called alcohol use disorder. And interestingly, it's it's 11 questions, and it cuts to the heart of, do I have a problem? Two of those 11 questions are these. Do I drink more than I need to to get the same effect? And do I ever regret drinking, saying, oh, man, I overdid it last night? And for me, in my profession, which is I was in the marketing advertising world, that was me and everybody I knew. (laughs) But if I measured myself on that 11 question spectrum, answering yes to those two questions was really mild, but it wasn't something I should necessarily ignore, right? I mean, it kind of feels like if you think you might have a problem, then you probably have something that is worth doing something about. Yeah, if you're asking, and I, I like to frame it like this I like to say, you know, we know that our brains are almost like computers, right? They give us the answers to the questions we ask them. And if you're asking the question, do I think I have a problem? The answer to that is either going to be yes or no, and it's either going to be stressful or not stressful. And the yes answer is going to be stressful. So we're going to want to, our brains are going to be biased to say no. And that's just how it's going to work. So I always like to say, well, what if we just asked a better question? Like, wouldn't that be more fun? Mm -hmm. What if we just asked, like, would, would my life be a bit better drinking less? Would I be more productive drinking less? Would I be happier? Would I lose weight? Would I look better? How could it be? Like, what if we ask that question? Because then the yes to that isn't filled with anxiety. It's like, huh, that's interesting. All right, maybe I'll give it a try. Yeah, I think your your construction is a bit more of like, would you like to be drinking less and you're not, don't seem to be able to do that? If so, then like maybe it's worth addressing that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And just kind of even moving further and further back from the, you know, if it is a spectrum and you imagine it on the spectrum and, and the end of the spectrum is kind of this rock bottom, you know, your life becomes unmanageable. You have to, you know, go and and either get treatment or, or whatever the case is, how far back can we move this conversation? I mean, my goal really is to make alcohol, you know, our conversation around alcohol they should be a wellness conversation rather than an addiction conversation. Because again, the reality is most people are not addicted. The approach you take in This Naked Mind, which I've read and I haven't read The Alcohol Experiment, but the approach you take in there is the book is a process in and of itself where you're trying to reprogram the reader's unconscious by talking to their conscious mind about alcohol. And I I found that to be really powerful. And there's no subject, like, I think if people have gotten to this point in the podcast and they do have 
a question about problematic drinking, they should probably just pick up your book or start the alcohol experiment or both. <laughs> but uh, can we talk a bit about alcohol itself? Because you bust some myths and I want you to bust those myths for us on the podcast about alcohol being healthier or the key to a long life or just the fact that it might not be all that dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting because in my journey, I remember intentionally being told that, okay, a glass of red wine is good for your heart. Yes. So I'm going to intentionally start to drink that every day. And I, I might've even been told that by a doctor, to be honest with you, because I didn't, I didn't really start drinking until I was in the corporate world. I mean, I drank here and there in college, but it wasn't until I was in, in the corporate world and kind of happy hour and the pressure there took over. And so a lot of my drinking was really launched, I would say, in my career. And I didn't have any inkling that it wasn't healthy for you. In fact, I thought it was healthy for you. Mm -hmm. And certainly we all know in the back of our mind, well, yeah, we see, you know, somebody on the side of the road with a paper bag and a bottle of bourbon in it. And, and that's not healthy, but red wine certainly is healthy, right? And one thing that I noticed is how often... I just read headlines, you know, and when we've got the bias of social sharing, because we're going to share stuff, the science of sharing says we're going to share stuff that makes us feel better about ourselves, makes us more accepted by our peers. And those things then by their very nature are not always going to be the controversial thing. It's the echo chamber, right? Yeah. Right. Unless the controversial thing is like, we're all rallying together against the controversial thing, mm -hmm. but it's very much still going to be the tribal thing. So if you're in a if you're in a social circle that's drinking a lot, sharing something about, you know, a half, I saw the article, a glass of red wine is more effective than half an hour at the gym or um, <laughs> yeah. non-drinkers live longer or no drinkers, moderate drinkers live longer than non-drinkers. That feels less ridiculous, but the gym one feels intuitively just ridiculous. Although I, <laughs> I want to believe it. <laughs> right, right. You want to believe it. And there is, I mean, each of these, if you look, so so what I started to do is I started to say, huh, how does, how does this line up with the fact that if I drink too much, I have to throw up to save my life. Mm -hmm. My body literally rebels against the alcohol to the point where like it expels it or I will die. Like, how does that sync up? Right. And how does it, how does it sync up with the statistic I read that like just two drinks a week increases a woman's chance of breast cancer by 15%. Like, how does that work? And so I started to look beneath the headlines and actually start to read the studies. And it is amazing how you can manipulate science. And I'm sure your audience is so well aware of this fact, <laughs> but it's amazing how you can manipulate. So in the, you live longer, that study is called the Houlihan study. And basically they took, they looked at people over a very long period of time. It was more than 20 years. And they looked at how many of them died. Now they didn't look at cause of death, but they did look at other things like how active they were, how much they drank. And they made a correlation that the people who drank a lot died first. The people who never drank died second, and the people who moderately drank died third. Hmm. Now, what they left out of the headline that is very clearly written in the study is that the never drinkers were people who had either health issues or prior problems with alcohol. Right. They, they weren't drinking for other reasons that would probably explain why they died earlier. Yes. And often that reason was a prior problem with alcohol. So they were sober in recovery. So they'd already done the damage to their liver. So then you have this headline saying moderate drinking makes you live longer. No, like, and it's just so far from reality. You know, it's the same thing with red wine and heart health. So they basically did a study where, and it was in mice, where resveratrol, which is the, you know, compound in wine that is supposed to be really good for your heart, reduced heart disease in mice. Mm-hmm. 
And so there was this huge study and they said, okay, red wine is good for your heart because it has this chemical compound, which by the way is also found in like blueberries and stuff like that. But let's conveniently leave that out, you know, all these <laughs> antioxidants and whatever. And then they did, a, they did a study within the last few years where they actually decided to test this in, I believe it was either Italy or France against people who were drinking lots of red wine and heart health. And they found that that compound actually did not have an effect on human heart health. It was just in the mice that came up and they couldn't replicate the mice study. But again, once that headline gets out there, you can look at this and you can say, okay, if there's a headline, there was a headline recently about no level of alcohol is safe for you. That came out about a year and a half ago. And nobody shares that one. Nobody shares it because crickets, you're not going to get the comments. Everybody's going to be like, you're a party pooper. What are you doing? Like, why did wait wait to bring down the mood? Right. Mm -hmm. But you get one that says, you know, alcohol makes you live longer. And all of a sudden everybody's like, yes, you know, and it's, I mean, I'm sure you're well aware of this term, but it's just confirmation bias. We want to confirm the things we're doing anyway to make ourselves feel better. It's just how the brain works. So, you know, it's, it's actually really innocent because we don't, we don't realize we're doing it, but it, we do have, I think humans who, when we start to drink too much, speaking from my own experience, you get this, this little nagging voice and it's like, huh, you know, is this really okay? Why don't I feel good today? Am I really going to work again with a hangover? Right. More Advil, is that really good for me? And there's this little voice and you either have to do something about that voice by making a different decision, which feels really hard, or you need to do things to make that voice quieter. And some of these, you know, confirmation bias, no, it is healthy for me. I, you know, I saw this article, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to drink with my friends. I'm going to, you know, all Mm -hmm. these things so that we, we just make more and more peace with, with this question. And again, because the primary question we're asking is, oh no, do I have a problem? Right. And that answer is scary and stressful. And And we're looking for ways to answer no. (laughs) Right. And when we get stressed, what do drinkers do? We yeah. drink, right? Like that's how it works. <laughs> I mean, in in this naked mind, you go into some detail around, on the one hand, the the massive weight of scientific and medical literature and studies and 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 writing on the fact that any amount of alcohol is is harmful or can be harmful, versus the highly publicized flawed interpretations of a couple of studies. And what struck me was like I can't simultaneously believe that alcohol is good for me and that climate change is real and that vaccinations are are safe because it's a similar thing where there's you know 99% of the ev- the weight of evidence for climate change is on one side and a couple of flawed interpretations of quack science on the other and the same for you know vaccinations causing autism like i i can't carry those contradictory things in my head at the same time so i've I guess now I believe that any amount of alcohol can be harmful. So, or is harmful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. You bring up just this topic that I I feel needs to be discussed. First of all, with climate change, I think it's really interesting because climate change not existing is a much less stressful belief. (laughs) It is. That's true. (laughs) Right. And alcohol being healthy when we're drinking it is much less stressful belief. So our brains are naturally going to gravitate towards things that make us feel better in the moment, even in if over the long term, they're not going to make us feel as good, which is really interesting. But it also brings up this idea of, okay, well, how can those things coexist? How can I say any alcohol is not safe? But then we live in a society where, look, let's be honest, there's going to be times where I'm probably going to drink mm-hmm. and choosing to not drink at all. Like, you know, I've, I don't really drink at all anymore. I haven't had a drink in almost five years now. But that is a very countercultural position right now. And mm-hmm. especially 
when I was still working in corporate. I mean, I remember going on these work trips to like Brazil and London and Dubai and not drinking and just like blowing people. I remember being in Australia, not drinking or in the UK and people are like, what is happening? Like it was so intense. But how how can we, you know, have those two things and have the tension between, okay, alcohol is dangerous in any amount, yet I'm still going to continue to drink. Because I think if we ignore that it's dangerous in any amount, we're not going to take a mindful approach to it. Right. But if we allow that it's dangerous, then drinking is going to become really stressful and we might either drink more or, you know, be frustrated, whatever the case is, or ignore the evidence that it is harmful. How can those things coexist? And I like to talk about this idea of we do lots of things intentionally and mindfully that are risky. We get in our cars every day. My lawyer brain immediately went to, you know, justifying wanting to drink by all of the other risky things that I do. Yeah, totally. Right. But we we get in our cars understanding that we need to wear our seatbelt. We understanding that we need to put it in four-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. Under, like we take harm reduction precautions because we don't ignore it. And I think for me, if I could just help people to not ignore it and get out of this paradigm where it's 100% or nothing, where I'm going to be all in as a non-drinker and you know, totally embrace all the evidence, or I'm going to ignore it completely because it's painful. If we could just like almost have this new area of just being incredibly mindful, whether that's taking a break and looking at your habits or whether it's, you know, just having what I call non-negotiables, like a few different things in your head where you're like, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to go there anymore. That's, that's my non-negotiable. If I do, I'm putting myself in a little bit of a timeout. It's a longer break, you know, just becoming saying, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it knowing the risks. I feel like we owe it to ourselves. I mean, we're, we're more conscious. I had this crazy conversation. Sorry to go on a tangent. No, but bring it. Yeah. I literally was sitting around with a group of girlfriends and they were all drinking wine and I was drinking a plastic water bottle. And one of them is like, you know, those have BPA. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, you're like, what? You know, that's ethanol in your glass. Like, that's the same stuff that goes into your car. Yeah. Like, I can't even comprehend that you're drinking wine. But that's that's the level of us not. Right. Saying, let's let's level our understanding of the risk, basically. Yeah. And then make your decision. And there's no right or wrong decision, in my opinion. I know that's contrary to the traditional kind of recovery community. But like, in my opinion, there's no right or wrong decision, but go into it mindfully, like you owe it to yourself to do that. So like I said, I think I said it at the top to our listeners. So I, I went through the alcohol experiment and today is day 30. So today's my last day. I read most of your emails. I've read the book and I've been engaging with this idea of, okay, so what kind of a drinker do I want to be going forward? And going into it, I think I drink too frequently, or I thought I drank too frequently, and occasionally excessively, but mostly just too often. And coming out of it, I'm thinking, you know, that exactly that thing, the cost benefit, the mindfulness of it, you know, that it's probably not worth drinking alcohol because I'm bored, especially on a weeknight, you know, but, but if somebody, if I'm at dinner and somebody orders a $300 bottle of wine, Uh, My curiosity is enough to overcome the risk there where I want to know what a $300 bottle of wine, a glass of that tastes like or scotch or what, you know, but like, and in between there is a whole lot of stuff where it's probably just not worth it. And that's kind of the reflection that I am taking away from this. And, but that as a general position, it's probably better for me to just not drink. That's probably, I'm better off. It's, I'm, it's healthier and I feel better. So. And it's so interesting when I have this conversation with people and they, they reframe it for themselves where oh my gosh, so I can really just say no occasionally. I remember my boss, the one who really got me into drinking in the first place in a way, because he was like, Amy, why aren't you at the happy hour? Like, what's going on? 
I'm like, oh, I don't really drink. He's like, oh no, it's not about that. You've got to network here. You got to show up for the big bosses who are in town from London. You got to be here. And I was like, okay. Right. I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. I was dead serious about my career. So if I had to, you know, learn how to drink to be, you know, promoted by all means, there was no no snag for me about it. Because again, just it's not common knowledge that there is some risk there. And about a year after I had left that role and about probably two years after the book was out, he's like, Hey, I read your book. And it's so nice just to be able to say no sometimes. Like I, yeah. I just never felt like that. We were all keeping up with each other. Like we were literally all keeping up with each other. I had so many coworkers who were like, I, well, I just drank cause you were always ordering more drinks. I was like, what are you kidding me? I was just doing it. Cause mm-hmm. you were like, I didn't want that eighth drink. I knew that was going to make me feel like crap. And you know, it was just so funny how we do because, because it's unexamined and like so many things that are unexamined, they just can fester and create this life of its own. I had another friend and she's like, Annie, oh my gosh, I feel like I've been going through my life accidentally drinking. I walk into a <laughs> dinner party and somebody puts a glass of wine in my hand and, and I just do. drink it's it. default, yeah. Yeah, it's, there's not even any consciousness in it, which is why so much of my work focuses on bringing this stuff into the consciousness and then saying, okay, what do I really want? What's really, and without guilt, right? Yeah. Because it's so important. Like the, the last thing, it, it doesn't work. You know, the guilt, the, we all know that alcohol causes more deaths than, you know, all prescription and illegal drugs combined. Like that's pretty common knowledge. Like it's really a harmful substance that doesn't change our behavior on a regular basis, you know, but conscious asking yourself the better question of like, huh, what do I really want? When is it really worth it? You know, when is it not worth it? And, and then making those decisions in the now, I mean, I feel like that's the best approach to most things, alcohol, food, whatever. Mm-hmm. Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> that, that makes sense. We, we are overdue. I got to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, I want to, I want to flip that and talk about how those who drink can have better manners towards those who choose not to. So we'll be back in a minute. Support for today's episode comes from Text Expander. Minimize effort, maximize productivity with Text Expander. Text Expander helps you work faster and smarter so you can focus your time on your most important work. Drive faster results in three steps. One, create. Make snippets of text for support responses, sales outreach, or even common emails to save them in Text Expander. Two, trigger. Just type a few characters and watch the snippet automatically expand your text. You can add fill in the blank or more complex functionality to customize your message. Three, share. Share snippets across your organization. Your team can customize and insert the text in any app on Mac, Windows, Chrome, or iOS with a few keystrokes. Are you a startup looking to scale? Text Expander is here to help you on your journey. Check out Text Expander for Startups, a program that's specifically designed to help startup teams communicate more consistently, accurately, and efficiently. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit TextExpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, helping hyper-competitive personal injury attorneys dominate first-page rankings through search engine optimization to become better recognized as the leading law firm in your metro. Rankings is solely focused on SEO for personal injury law firms. You'll work with an entire team of SEO specialists dedicated to helping clients dominate search results with unparalleled industry expertise. Rankings focuses on proof, not promises, by delivering results and never leaving their clients in the dark. You will receive monthly reports that give a full snapshot of where you stand as you watch your firm climb to the first page of Google and generate high-value leads. Most importantly, you'll be one of an elite few, 
Rankings unrelenting conviction to be the best drives them to do everything to ensure the personal injury law firms working with them are dominating the search results. To see if you're a fit, visit rankings.io forward slash lawyerist to get started. Today's podcast is brought to you by Latera. Delivering high quality work on time and on budget is what matters most to your clients. Latera helps law firms maximize client retention rates, increase profit margins, and enhance lawyer happiness. In short, they simplify complex workflows by connecting legal teams to the data they need every day. The result? End user happiness. Most of the world's largest law firms, boutique firms, and corporate legal departments trust Latera to help their legal teams manage all of their documents, deals, cases, and data. Are you ready to join them? Latera is excited to hear about the challenges facing your organization, show you their software in action, or simply discuss whatever else might be top of mind. Get a demo with their document experts today by visiting latera.com forward slash lawyerist. So we're back. So Annie, I, as I was reading about the challenges uh, in, in your Facebook group, in your emails, in the book, about how challenging it can sometimes be to be the non-drinker in the room and, and reflecting on the conversation we've been having, it strikes me that, that people who are drinking <laughs> could bear some of the responsibility to have a better attitude about those who choose not to as well. Like what are some... What are some good manner best practices that the drinkers in the room can have? It's such a great question because again, it's it's so innocent. I mean, it's so full of just lack of of examination. I remember saying constantly that I just didn't trust people who didn't drink. I have said that and I am ashamed of it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, and I just really felt that was true. I mean, if they're not willing to have one or two and really say what's on their mind and all this stuff, I I just wasn't going to trust them or whatever the case was. And and I think that it's so funny because if you if you take a step back and you look at it, there's this great comedian that I saw, and he's basically he doesn't drink and he compared it to not eating mayonnaise. And he's like, Yeah, what if I walked in and I was like, No, I don't want any mayonnaise. And people are like, Oh my gosh, do you have a mayonnaise problem? I don't do you think want we can hang outside? out anymore. I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God, you're a downer on this. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to like, do you not want to see the fact that I'm putting mayonnaise on? Do you, <laughs> do you not want me to use mayonnaise around you? Like what's the, you know? And so I, I think really just making it a non-issue, you know what I mm -hmm. mean? Like making, if someone says, I think the point where the etiquette goes wonky again, very innocently is what do you want to drink? Oh, I'd love an iced tea. Oh, are you sure? Wait, right. are, Just don't are say you that. not drinking? Like, yeah. I remember the first time I was on a business trip in London and I didn't prepare anybody. And I remember talking to like my husband and being like, should I tell people ahead of time? Like, of course you overthink it as the person in the room who's not going to be drinking. You overthink it. And I was like, no, no, it's not going to be a big deal. Just go into it. It's no problem. And so I, I walked in and this coworker, Danny, she said, Hey, Annie, do you want to drink? And I was like, no, thanks. I'm just going to have whatever. And and she's like, wait, are you pregnant? And I was like, no. And she's like, well, are you sick? I'm like, no. And she's like, well, no, what? What's happening? What's going right. on? She was so almost aggressive. You, said, you said drinking is the only like drug that you have to explain why you don't take. Right, right. And so if we could just, as an etiquette, just like, don't make anybody explain it. That, I mean, just that would go so far, you know. Just chill. And then just chill. <laughs> <laughs> One of, one of the reasons that I said, you know, I, I'm trying to avoid making sweeping, sweeping pronouncements to myself or to anybody else about my takeaways from a 30 day experiment with not drinking. But, but one of the things I found compelling in your book was you talk about, okay, so you're, you're wondering what your future is going to be. Let me talk to you about moderation. And I found it really compelling. You argue that 
moderation is harder than drinking or not drinking because you actually have to kind of obsess about the fact that you're not drinking. It's it's like going on a diet. All you can think about is the thing that you don't have. Yeah. Moderation is a lot like being on an alcohol diet. Mm -hmm. And so how I differentiate this in the alcohol experiment, which is the more recent book. So I think it has a little bit of updated thinking, but I differentiate it between like liberation versus fixation. Yeah. Because I think that if you're truly liberated from, from alcohol, where it doesn't have, it doesn't have its kind of hooks in you. And just to be really clear, like alcohol in the brain overstimulates dopamine. Like you have an artificially high level of it. Dopamine tells you, Hey, that thing you just did, I need you to do that again to survive. It's the same thing with, with sex, with food, you know, it's like a dog. It's like click training for dogs, right? Absolutely. The dopamine and so we is have the clicker. This, exactly. <laughs> we have this idea that if alcohol gets its hooks in me, somehow it's my fault. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just one of those people who just can't do it. And, and we've made this like dichotomy where there's these alcoholics and they're different than us and they're let's pity them. I'm so sad for them, whatever. But like, since you're a human and you have blood and flesh and bones and brain cells, like alcohol is going to react like alcohol does in your brain. It doesn't matter. And so drinking every single day and then stopping, it's going to make it a little bit hard, at least in the short term, for you to just easily give it up. It's just like sugar. Sugar you'll have, you'll have a craving. Yeah. You're going to have a craving. And so we make that really wrong in ourselves, which is something I just wanted to mention. But yeah, it's not a willpower thing. It's a biological, chemical, mental thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It has nothing to do with you being strong enough or, you know, good enough or not being, you know, but we've made it all that. We've mm -hmm. made people drinking too much. Like you, we don't have like cigarette aholics or like heroin, you know, heroinism. Like yeah. we're just like, no, cigarettes are addictive. I guess we do like hotheads yeah. though. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's, that's <laughs> totally a fair point. That's fair. Yeah. But with alcohol, no, it's, it's all about the person, the person, something wrong with the mm -hmm. person. We feel that shame because we've been carrying it for a long time. And so what I like to do is just really differentiate between this idea of liberation, which is you walk into a party, what's your first thought? Is your first thought, okay, am I going to drink? Am I not going to drink? Where is the drinks? What is there to drink? You're fixated. That's the fixation side of it. If you walk into the party and you're like, oh, who's here? Alcohol's not top of mind. And so I think yeah. it's really about, and I have a whole kind of list in the book of different ways you can look at this in different circumstances to just give people a framework to think about it. But the key for me I wanted alcohol to become small and irrelevant in my life. And I, like you, I do not make sweeping. I will never say I'm never drinking again for two mm. reasons. Number one, I know how the brain works and the brain's going to go, whoa, 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 that's too scary. I can't do it. It's forbidden fruit. Oh my gosh. You know, so what I say is I drink whatever I want. I just haven't wanted to have a drink in five years. So like, and I, it is true. I haven't wanted to because I've done a lot of work on my thinking and what I believe about alcohol. And when you believe the things that the science says, it's, it's hard to want to in most circumstances. And that's what my work is really centered on. But when you're fixated on it, it creates a huge amount of mental noise. Mm -hmm. There's a huge amount of back and forth. And am I going to, am I not going to, there's a huge amount of just thinking about drinking or thinking about like, cause it's, I've always taken breaks to make sure that I can, Mm -hmm. But there was something different about this one because previously it's always been for a week or two or three or four. It's I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. Right. That's the constant mantra in my head, basically. Yeah. The breaks without the mindset shift, which is what the alcohol experiment delivers that nothing else does, are literally creating the diet mentality. Mm -hmm. 
it's creating the forbidden fruit. It's okay. Two things coming out of the break. One, man, did I miss it? And two, thank God I proved to myself that I, I don't have a problem. And exactly. so both of those things yes, exactly. accumulate into more drinking, mm-hmm. ironically. And so, yeah, so I didn't want that with the alcohol experiment. With the alcohol experiment, you're 15 days in, you're like, huh, I don't even think I want to drink. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll never drink. Maybe I will. Who knows? I'm just going to play it by ear. Like, and so it's really this fascinating giving you back all the power because I'm just giving you the knowledge. I'm just taking this thing that's previously unexamined and we're going deep into examining it. And then you're making your own decision again, based on, yeah, maybe I want to skydive someday. There's risk in that. Maybe I want to keep drinking. There's risk in that. Mm-hmm. But for me, the goal should always be, and again, it's about asking your brain a better question. The goal should be freedom. It is not free, in my opinion, to stop drinking and go to meetings every single day about drinking. And if people, that works for them and they need to do that, that is amazing and it's beautiful. And I support that 100%. In my life, that would not be freedom. That would be giving alcohol more power than it even had when I was drinking it. And so for me, freedom is getting rid of the thinking, getting rid of the fixation, getting rid of the, the desire so that it is small and irrelevant. So then, you know, and, and that's what people report. Like, they're like, well, if I want to drink, I have one. But if I don't, I'm not thinking about it. I'm not craving it. And I think if you are in the fixated part, if you are where it's taking up a lot of your mental energy to be like, am I going to, am I not going to, how much, when? I mean, I remember all of those things. I'm not going to drink until Friday. Okay, I'm just, can't do that. So I'm just going to not drink until Thursday. Couldn't do that. Okay, I'm just going to have one alcohol-free day. <laughs> right. I mean, you you share these examples from your own background and 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 as just general examples in the book and in the the emails that I received through the alcohol experiment and it's they just so resonate with me that I'll be like you know I feel like I've had a drink every night for five days in a row maybe tonight I shouldn't drink and inevitably in the evening when I'm tired and bored and my defenses are down that crumples and it's because I'm trying to moderate and that that res- that's why I think that's why it resonated so strongly with me where I was like. Yeah, it's a lot easier just to say, no, I'm probably not drinking. <laughs> yeah, and that, there's another factor of the brain that you could look at the brain like a little kid, right? Like if a little kid is coming to you and they want ice cream mm-hmm. and they think there's a chance they're going to get ice cream, how much are they going to talk to you about it? <laughs> Even if you say no, if they still think there's a chance, they you will ask not. ask me one more time, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> they will say everything possible. They will never shut up. Mm-hmm. But if they know there's no chance, if they're sure there's no chance, like if they believe your word mm-hmm. and they know there's no chance, they shut up and they let it go. The brain is the same way. And that's why this firm decision for 30 days can feel really easy because you've said no chance, 30 days, no chance. You've reset your default. The brain shuts up. Yeah. The brain goes away. It's like, okay, I'm not drinking. Let's think about other more interesting stuff. But if you go into it, which is what moderation is, am I going to do it? Am I not going to do it? How much am I going to have? The brain is not going to stop because guess what? It craves the artificial stimulation that alcohol provides at a neurochemical level. I mean, there's just not really any getting around the science behind that. And so it's going to create a lot of internal, am I, am I not? And, you know, none of that feels good. But if you make a firm decision, and I always recommend that people, you know, just don't go back into it after an experiment. Don't go back into it mindlessly. Yeah. Don't let somebody just put a, a bottle of beer in your hand and make party. a decision. Make a decision and preferably make the decision before whatever event there is. So if you go, it, I always say maybe means yes. <laughs> That's, you go right. out to a happy hour and you're like, oh, maybe, I don't know. I'm doing pretty good. Maybe you're going to drink mm-hmm. most of the time. If you go and you're like, no, not tonight, maybe tomorrow night, you're not going to drink. And you're going to have so much more fun because you've made that decision ahead of time. So you, um, you come from the world of marketing, which is 
has a famously hard drinking culture as well. And law certainly does. And we at lawyers, we put on events, we have conferences, we have meetups, we, you know, we host things. And we have been trying to decide, like, what does it look like to change the culture of our profession or the world in general around um, how central we make alcohol to things? Because putting alcohol front and center in an event feels like you're, you're setting those maybes up for failure. You know, what are, what are some of your ideas or, or advice for how we can change the culture of the profession, the culture of socializing, the culture of networking, whatever? So I've, I've been actually working with a young man at Stetson Law School about doing an alcohol experiment within the law school and cool. kind of doing it as a voluntary wellness thing. And I think something like that, like within universities and just providing it as, you know, an optional thing where people could even do it as a fundraiser, you know, get pledges for my 30 days or whatever the case is, I think could be really powerful as a very tangible thing. But I think the broader and deeper answer to that is, you know, like all change happens, it happens with a minority and not a minority that is sadly sober. As I like to say, I remember a friend of mine getting right. sober about 11 years ago and she was the poster child for, oh my gosh, I never want to be sober <laughs> <laughs> because it looked so miserable. And she, and she reports that she felt really miserable. And so I think when you, when you feel like you have to give up alcohol because you've drank too much and now finally you're just going to have to do it and oh, bummer like that, gives the example of like, geez, that's not anything I ever want. Where on the other hand, if you come into a situation, you've had a mindset shift, you've decided this is a wellness conversation. You've decided, hey, you know, tonight I'm not drinking. And you walk in there and you order a nice tea and you're laughing and having a good time as you will. That really has a ripple effect. It is profound because like I said earlier, we're all really keeping up with each other. It's incredible how just one person doing something different proudly and with the right mindset of not you're not in a, I don't get to, you're in a kind of like a vegan. Like, I don't want meat. I'm not like, you know, pining over your hamburger. Cause like right. I made my decision. Like I'm proudly vegan or whatever the case is. You open up this whole other conversation is like, wow, that's cool. So, huh. How'd you do that? Yeah. And then all of a sudden that really starts to shift. So I do think it is very grassroots and it is like everything, everything shifts with a kind of radical minority. I suppose we also just need to get better at putting something, a different activity at the center of our events. I mean, it it's really easy to fall back on, there will be alcohol. And so the alcohol is holding, a, the activity is holding a drink and, and socializing, whereas we're not very good at, at putting other activities centrally to the things that we plan, I guess. Yeah. And I think that one thing that I've seen people do, corporations do, and bars do, is just have a very visible non-alcoholic option mm -hmm. and it will blow your mind because sense. there isn't one. If you had something that is like virgin sangria, something that's nice tasting and kind of fancy looking, but it's a non-alcoholic alternative, or you, you know, you walk up to those little bars in the hotel where you're at the, everybody's networking and socializing and there's the bar and they just have a just sign that says, Hey, non-alcoholic options. And they list like a, you know, not an alcoholic virgin mojito or whatever the case is. It's like blows people. They're like, <laughs> I can't believe how many people took me up on this. It's just that it hadn't been an option before. I ordered some seed lip while I was on the alcohol experiment, which um, for those who have never heard of it, like I hadn't, is a distilled spirit that is non-alcoholic. It's interesting. I'm not sure. I think it's worth 30 bucks a bottle. But one of the things I love about it is that it's not trying to be a fake cocktail. Right. Like if I wanted to drink cocktails, I would drink cocktails. I want to find interesting things to drink that are not alcohol based 
or facsimiles of alcohol-based drinks. And I've been pleased to see as I've been going out and doing things that more and more bars seem to be getting this idea that they can be creative with beverages that aren't just sugar and aren't just cocktails without alcohol in them, um, which is kind of neat to see. So, yeah. I was on um, Good Morning America last January and we filmed in a brewery, in a distillery. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to the owner and I was like, so what's he's like, it's crazy. In the last two years, the amount of requests we get for, you know, interesting things to drink that are non-alcoholic has just skyrocketed. I mean, it's like many, many multiples. And he's like, it's not just the like pregnant women and, you know, the few people who are sober. It's a lot of people just don't want to drink all the time anymore. That seems healthy. So um, speaking of which, by way of closing, I suppose, what's your favorite beverage for social non-alcoholic beverage consumption? It's funny. I'm drinking it right now. I love um, Brew Doctor Kombucha. It's Hmm. like a clear mind. It's like this organic fermented tea has rosemary and sage in it. I think it's, it's great. I'm still trying to get my head around kombucha, but um, Aaron (laughs) Street, my business partner, um, makes his own and his mom is starting her own business, making brewing kombucha out of her house and selling it. So I think I need to get with the program. <laughs> well, and you need to be really careful because if there's a lot of very vinegary tasting kombuchas, yeah. I think that's where I started when I was like, Ugh. Yeah. But, yeah, you have one of the wrong ones. And you're like, oh, that's why would anybody? But the thing that that's great about it, if you can get a good one, is it's very mild and it's sippable. Like it has almost the, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's called speed bumps or something. You know how alcohol, you're not going to just down it all. Right. But orange juice, you're just going to chug it. And then what are you going to do? Drink 18 orange juices? It's not going to happen. Right. So, but kombucha is a nice, you feel like an adult still. <laughs> but what you just nailed, speed bumps. I like that because that is a quality that alcoholic beverages have where they encourage you to sip them and drink them slowly. I mean, un- until you get to a certain point that water doesn't have, you can just chug a glass right. of water. You know, it, it's an interesting quality that is harder to find outside of alcoholic drinks. And, um, but I have noticed that about kombucha. You're putting it into the experience of drinking rather than the facilitating hydration, right? Yeah. Which is what we're after really. That is what I hope to see more of if this idea spreads is drinks that are enjoyable to drink, not because they get you tipsy. So Annie Grace, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. And I think it's worth encouraging listeners to, you know what, go and try the alcohol experiment. It's, uh, (laughs) I guess if you find yourself coming up with excuses, like I did, I, I I was looking at the page and like, Oh, but the holidays are coming up. There's going to be things that I want to drink. And I'm like, damn it, that now I'm making excuses. So I have to do it. Give it a try. That's awesome. So anyway, thank you so much, Annie. Thank you. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Ryan Croft. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discussed here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com slash community slash lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.